Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hello. On this week's New Statesman podcast, Helen and I are both on it, but sadly not together. I and Patrick discuss what's going on with May's TV debate, and then Helen discusses a new play that's coming to town. The New Statesman podcast you're about to listen to is a very special and a very sad one, because it's the last one produced by our longtime producer, Caroline Crampton. Caroline is the person who essentially created the New Statesman website in its modern form, person who's responsible for the shape and the format of this podcast the fact that it's me and helen uh, you know being increasingly annoying and twee so really if you've enjoyed this podcast if you've booked yourself into a novotel if you've been disappointed by some very bad bespoke trousers if you've liked anything on the new statesman website if you've encountered the new statesman for the first time online it's uh, almost certainly because of caroline we're very sad to be losing her and we wish her all the best So as far as the substantial stuff of Brexit, not much has changed. Government is hopelessly adrift, uh, has now passed the crucial point where half of the non-payroll vote, that is the bit of the Conservative Party, which does not hold some kind of job as a minister, cabinet minister, envoy to the Dollet dukedom, has said that it will vote against. The, the only change is that Theresa May has challenged Jeremy Corbyn to a debate. And to discuss that, I am joined by Patrick McGuire. Hello. Yeah, it looks like this debate is going to happen in some form. Team Corwin are very much up for it. Team May, very much up for it. You know, they spent much of today and yesterday sort of heavily circumscribing the invitation list. Boris Johnson isn't going to be there. Nicholas Sturgeon isn't going to be there. And instead, we're going to get two primitive chatbots seeing which one of them can fail the Turing test fastest. So that'll be fun viewing for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I like how you say for everyone, like I'm not going to make you do it. But... um. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I'm what, not. What better way to spend a Sunday night? Particularly seeing as I think it actually may directly conflict with Doctor Who. So it's odd because despite the fact that they are both not great on their feet, the annoying thing is I don't actually think there's even going to be the suspense of which one will fail the Turing test harder. She is significantly worse and will do significantly worse. I've gone on a bit of a journey uh, on this and that at first I basically thought, well, look, this is a bad idea because there is only one format which Jeremy Corbyn could do worse on, which would be a very detailed debate on the policy bit. But of course, what the leader's office will do, as they have done, is basically go, yeah, we're up for it. And then, of course, when you go into debate negotiations, if if the other side has, has called for a debate, right, they are the ones who have called for the for the beef and you will win 
nine out of ten possible formats. Your only priority is you don't get the format of Doom. I now think that that was wrong because I actually instinctively think even the format of Doom she might well lose and lose quite badly. Well, yeah, because she has lost, she keeps losing the clashes she has in the commons with Corbyn, which are themselves about issues, specific policy issues from these documents. You know, Corbyn is bad on the breadth and the detail, but actually the only only details that matter and will matter to the broadcasters and the moderator, uh, you know, Michelle Hussein, Julie Etchingham, whoever it is, will be the politically contentious ones. And they're the pain points that Corbyn has been punching and he's uh, in PMQs and making the Prime Minister look a fool and, you know, on the backstop, the divorce bill, uh, length of transition, whatever, ones that don't very much make very much sense outside of the context of, you know, making her look like an idiot and exploiting her internal weaknesses in the Tory party, right? He He's proven he can do that. There's no incentive for the broadcasters to, you know, can we get you to both agree on agricultural subsidies or whatever? So actually, even if he doesn't get to say, and austerity, right, he is more than likely to win because he has he's winning already. Yeah. So, I mean, let's say that it is, you know, narrowly focused on the terms of the withdrawal agreement. One, as you say, he, he's already shown that he's perfectly capable of very successfully occupying that. Here's my, but my fantasy deal would be significantly better. The moderator is not going to effectively be able to draw out, okay, so are you saying that it is no longer Labour's position as it was in the manifesto that free movement will end? Because it's a, it's a debate on May's yeah. deal. This is like, he will always be able to retreat back to we would negotiate a better deal. Labour's Brexit policy and, and people buying it is a really sort of great example of how your political brand can help or hurt you. Because Labour's overall brand, regardless of who its leader, is basically like the nice but slightly daffy one, then when they go, we would do this but nicer, people believe it. If uh, Corbyn was going, we will do this but we'll pay less money, Ah, uh, people go, yeah, but you're the Labour Party, you love spending money, mate, what are you talking about? So the Labour Party is weirdly optimised as a kind of political brand to occupy this space of our deal would be nicer. He is then incredibly well-placed because he is obviously at his most fluent on European issues when he can sound Eurosceptic. And the most painful position to occupy in this debate for Theresa May will be for Jeremy Corbyn to sit in a more Eurosceptic position going, we would do it, but nicer. And I can't work out how it could... And also, I mean, she is, she is as you said with your chatbot, right? they are both not good at this. She, I think there's this weird thing often where when, um, when, some, when a politician does something and the overall gambit doesn't work out, a large chunk of like the lobby goes, oh, well, that was because it was a bad decision. Actually, avoiding the de- debate was a great call on her part. I mean, as shown by her kind of that awful death stare to the... You know, to the woman who went, I haven't had a raise. It was just like, why do you look like you're trying to zap this person with your psychic powers? She is not good in that format. It was the correct, just because she suffered a lot of other political damage, which meant that it went from, why would she not, why would she bother? She's miles ahead, fair enough, to, oh, she's floundering and now she won't even do the debates. But I don't think it changes the fact. And if she had turned up to that debate where Amber Rudd turned up instead, I think she would have been pulverised. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it definitely, you know, it is much better to be thought a coward than to be thought crap. Uh, and I think those were basically her choices, as this debate will show. The other sort of weird thing is, is that, I mean, real talk, this is not going to pass with Tory votes. Um, I know you looked back on one of the... Uh, you know, some of the divisions uh, where, you know, 
you have an advertised number of rebels and then a slightly smaller. So how many rebels did this rebellion you've looked at for us lose? Uh, so I, if you compare the, the other example of Tory rebellion, which is the Telegraph Mutineers front page, that has something like 15 MPs on it. And then subsequent rebellions lost about... Uh, if we take those as the sort of very example of these are MPs who are willing to soften Brexit legislation for reasons of process, that one was the, 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 the that was the exit date, but you know that that core group continued to make amendments. It goes from sort of fifteen to anywhere between twelve and six or five. So you're looking at the very least you shared about a quarter. More often it's about half, that, and that's sort of rebels who have declared a. You know, this is their guiding principle in in this legislation. They are bought off or peeled off, or concessions are enough. Uh, and then, you know, as we saw that in the withdrawal uh, bill process, you know, grieve what bought off. You know, Philip Lee was enough to buy off grieve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, you lose. There is a lot of attrition. Yeah, but of course, crucially, with our kind of ready reckoner that you've done with these going back through old uh, rebellions is. Even if we take the list you're running on our website, where we've got a very hard filter, a much harder filter uh, than the uh, BuzzFeed list, yeah. and a harder filter, I assume, than The Guardian, because so, yes. they have more people on it. Yeah. Um, even on our filter, if you assume that they were to lose half, well, it's still, that's still, still, 44, wallet, yeah, still yeah. 44 rebels, so that's still losing by more than 80 votes. If you lose a quarter, that's more than 100 votes. So... At this point, uh, anyone, and there are weirdly still some people who are going, she might win the first vote. At this point, what you're saying is the Conservative whips will have their best performance ever, mm. literally ever in this parliament, right? And I think actually probably ever, ever. In, in terms of advertised rebellions, um, I can't think of a example where the, the declared number has been bigger than expected. Obviously, most defeats are semi a surprise, uh, you know, like... Margaret Thatcher being defeated over Sunday trading hours, for example. So you notice you did not have declared number and then... But crucially, of course, the other reason why rebellions tend to fold is that people are worried that you don't have the numbers. And if you are Philip Lee and you see the whip talking to Dominic Grieve and you can't find out what Dominic Grieve's talked to about the whip and you suddenly think, oh, but wait a second, if he's folded, we don't have the votes, so maybe I should fold too. None of that applies when you know that there are close to 100 of you. Um, yeah, and, st- and still less, you know, those were questions of process, mainly the, the previous rebellions on these bills. Nothing, you know, no concession from the whips or no, you know, fudgy wording about whatever their pet interest is or, you know, time for a private member's bill is going to convince people who've expended a lot of political capital, still less for people for whom this is their only animating political philosophy, right? You know, Peter Bone, uh, Philip Hollowbone, whoever. Um, you're not going to, and the DUP for that matter, you know, nothing is going to make them think at the 11th hour, you know, if Wendy Morton, one of the junior whips is saying, oh, you know, but we've changed the wording on this. You know, there is no way they can buy them off, you know, whereas we're at such a state in the Brexit process that, that it's, you know, now or never, it's binary. Whereas before, the you know, whoever could put a bit of wording into the, you know, a new clause in, the, in a government amendment that was, you know, a bit softer or whatever. Like yeah. This just can't happen now. Yeah, there is no time for fudge. But that means that the only way this is going to pass is if some Labour MPs vote for it. And, I mean, so let's imagine for a moment that everything we've seen from Theresa May when she goes on television, talks to a punter, handles a difficult question, has to go off script, and everything we've seen about Jeremy Corbyn in a freewheeling hustings format in those two Labour leadership elections and the election. Imagine that all of those things, right, 
has has been a ke- a cunning feint by Theresa May, like it's some kind of All like saving up for this, moment. yeah, like Muhammad Ali style rope and dope, <laughs> and she is just suddenly going to turn out to be the best debater since Demosthenes or however you pronounce it. And she, you know, yeah, this, the the uh, post result poll shows that eighty percent of people think she won, and the you know the debate. The, the audience in the debate start banging tables going, withdrawal agreement, withdrawal agreement. There will still be more than seven uh, committed Brexiteers who will not vote for it, yeah. which means that they will need some Labour MPs to vote for it. If you're a Labour MP, it's politically painful. If you're the Labour, Labour MP, all the Labour leadership, right, you are going to at some point end up in a position which is probably going to be Maybe politically uh, difficult to negotiate, but you you successfully, or for the leadership, managed to go. We're the adults. We've been the adults. You fix it and you change your reputation. It, that is, there is a theoretical outcome where that happens, but it's a very tricky uh, needle for them to thread. Um, in most cases, the Labour Party is going to have to be willing to take some political damage if if no deal is to be averted. And individual Labour MPs may have to take some political damage in order to avert uh, a no deal exit. So in that situation, is it more or less likely that will happen in sufficient numbers if she has spent an hour, like, whomping him over the... There is basically no outcome, because if she loses, the kind of fear of, oh, we're letting the government off the hook becomes stronger. If she wins, well, she's, she's just walloped someone who... Yeah, and how do, you, how do you sell that to your CLP if you are Lisa Nandy, Gareth Snell, you know, for that matter, you know, those two people have said they're not going to back the vote. But the most striking thing Downing Street has said about this in recent days uh, was at the uh, huddle uh, for lobby journalists after the Prime Minister's statement on Monday. Now, these are always a, a good barometer to what is actually happening because you get unguarded questions and 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 uh, unexpected answers. Um, and the most striking question and answer in that was, you know, what are you doing to woo individual Labour MPs? You know, Lisa Nandy said she wasn't going to vote for the deal yesterday. Is the, has the Prime Minister sat down with her? Is she going to ring her? Is she going to put time aside to sell it to individual Labour MPs? You know, she's selling it to the country, but what about the people who actually need to vote for the thing in the, in the, in the first instance? And the answer was no, and there are no plans to do it, which is crazy. And as you wrote in a column recently, you know, David Cameron would have uh, Labour MPs who, you know, are quite like the idea of, bombing places in the Middle East round for tea, right? And yet the Prime Minister staring down the barrel of a potentially, you know, 100-vote defeat hasn't even started that job. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that on the one hand, I find it's, I find it so hard to conceive that we will leave without a deal because it would be a calamity. Democracies do not cause famines uh, and it's not in the electoral interests of the governing party to cause that crisis. And... One assumes that a large number of Labour MPs will not be able to bring themselves to allow said crisis to occur. But because she's so politically inept and just so bad at understanding that other political parties do have political interests too, and you do need to try and appeal to those interests, it feels, yeah, I mean, it is just bizarre that, you know, whenever Cameron was in a tricky spot, right? He would always just okay, well, who are the people who we know can count, who when they say 20 of my mates feel the same way, they're not just doing paper tour. And yeah, whether it's, you know, the second Syria vote or, you know, if it's, you know, kind of a, a you know, some kind of, you know, reproductive rights issue or you know, something like that, right? Cameron understood that what you don't do is sit there like on TV going national interest, national interest. You go, right, well, so what is it that you need in order for this to not be politically destructive and terrible? And there just seems to be no awareness and that is something she needs to do. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now I'm joined by Rebecca Frecknell, director and Patsy Farron, actor of Summer and Smoke, which is at the Duke of York's Theatre in London until the 19th of January. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, I saw this production when it was at the Almeida before it transferred to the West End, and I really loved it. And Rebecca, I'm going to start with you first, because I am surprised. It's a very little known, or until now, was a very little known Tennessee Williams play, but you've kept coming back to it. You directed it at the Southwark Playhouse before, and I think was part of your directing training too. Yeah. What, why? What's so, what's so great about it? Um... I just always loved it. I saw it for the first time, the last time it was in the West End in 2006 when I was a student and I just found it really affecting. I just found the story and in particular the two central characters and their relationship just really got me. And um, I love a play that is really moving emotionally. Um, and I just, I couldn't understand why it had never quite kind of had the performance history that some of his other great plays have had. And so I sort of began to explore <laughs> why that was and and yes it sort of began this long relationship with that play okay so for people who don't know it's set in i'm gonna say 1910 1910 1916 1916s ish mississippi yeah the lead characters are alma and john so patsy you're alma yes, I am. and <laughs> this is uh, so i was just saying to you that i i find your, your performance is incredibly it's, it's, it's one of kind of pinpoint anxiety so it start the play has an extraordinary start where you come to the front of the stage and gasp for breath correct how did you go about finding the, the right level to communicate that to the audience? I think that's all thanks down to this person across uh, the table from me. That's, yeah. that's not me. I'm just <laughs> to clarify. Uh, that's all. No, it, uh, that's Rebecca, Rebecca. Yeah. our director. Basically, I got given, um, well, firstly, that opening where essentially uh, she has a panic attack is some of the best prep you could ever give me because that's, that's Alma's... Um, state her whole like that's her sort of comfort zone is to be on a constant uh, verge of a panic attack and that's because um something that rebecca said which is everything is harder for her every single social interaction everything that she um has to say for herself is harder to come up with she wants to do the right thing um, all the time, even though it goes against probably what her natural instinct is. So that's you're, you're witnessing a person who's trying to be one thing, but is fighting against her true self, I think is a, is a constant um, journey that's happening throughout the play. And then there was something that you mentioned um, only a few weeks ago about how every line is an event for her. <laughs> so no matter what comment comes out someone's mouth, it's a big deal for her because she's on a state of like, I don't know, it's apparent paranoia I don't know just sort just sort of um she's she's just never comfortable I think it's a really interesting meditation on mental health actually because you're right there is this sense that for people who are anxious or depressed everything costs them more right and that's one of those things that why it's you know such a tiring state to be in but Rebecca I'm really interested because Alma's character Preacher's Daughter but suffused with lust for John fair uh, I think <laughs> we can all agree um, 
But, you know, I, I'm surprised that in a way that's, uh, you know, we're supposed to be living in an incredibly sexually liberated society where, you know, women are supposed to be able to go out and kind of just air their feelings. Are you surprised that it's ended up connecting with people? No, not at all. Um, because I think there's this interesting idea about what we feel we're supposed to do and actually the reality of of how we feel in society. And, and I actually, one of the reasons... Um, I wanted to do it again at the Almeida was I just felt like it was so current and that both the central characters are so contemporary. They're both young people, they're 25, um, trying to deal with who they are in a, an oppressive society full of gossip and expectation and um, judgment. And I just feel like so many young people have connected it, connected to it, because I just think that's such a current thing. I mean, I definitely feel that. I feel like there's, there's this idea that we're all living in a kind of open, liberated society now. And of course, in some ways we are. But actually, like our idea of ourself and our need for validation, our need for love, our need for um, acceptance and to be felt, uh, to be seen as normal, whatever that means, mm -hmm. I think will never, never change. I think humans will always live in a state of self-doubt, which is kind of both really unfortunate and really creative. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting... Do you feel that you know Alma's modern versions of Alma? People, are there characters well, like yes, that? Well, yes, I, I think I am, right here. I am <laughs> her in a way. I was going to say I, what was a very unexpected um, thing for me for this job was I was dealing with a character which forced me to look at myself in a certain way that I hadn't ever looked at myself before. It forced me to sort of psychoanalyze, do I have a doppelganger? Do I, because we the, the play deals with this idea that we have a, a self that um, is our true self, but might we might re we might probably repress because of what society expects from us, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, um, it was an odd rehearsal period first time round because not only was I learning all of these lines and trying to do like the play justice and tell the story, I was also going through my own um, almost verging on the age of, at the age of 30 going, do I know who I really am? <laughs> and um, it's it was such a learning curve. It's just a human being. And um, definitely with the, the audience response that we've got, um, there are every night we have an audience full of Almas, men and women, which is so um, exciting. I think that, yeah, I think that's very fun because I agree with you. When I watched it, I was like, it is really hard to say what you feel. In, like, in big groups and that and kind of thing. I think mm -hmm. that that's something, even people who are incredibly outwardly confident or chatty, probably everyone has had that experience of just, I can't represent myself to the, in the way that I think that I feel I am. Rebecca, I want to ask you about some of the doubling that's in the play. So mm -hmm. um, Forbes, for example, plays both Alma and John's father, which I have to say, it's even seasoned for this girl that I am, slightly mildly confused me the first time I watched <laughs> it. Which is a good thing, right? Because it does shake you out of that kind of complaint and you have to, forces you to then to pay attention a lot yeah. harder. But that more European, whatever you want to call it, metaphorical style of directing, how do you calibrate what's interesting and engaging and what's baffling? Just baffling <laughs> to people. Um, I guess previews tell you a lot of that. Okay, so what was the preview period for this like the first time around? It was amazing, actually, because I think we went into um, previews kind of going... We don't know what we've made. I mean, I was incredibly proud of the company, but we were aware we'd made something that was sort of slightly... Um, a story people didn't know, but a writer people did, a director people didn't know, mostly a cast people didn't know, and that we were doing it in this slightly more abstracted way. But on the first show was just electric, really, and we were it taught us a lot about what we've made. Um, I'm never consciously trying to make something abstract or European, or I'm not trying... I, I never set out to try and make something 
trendy or I don't know, like, but I just, I just was trying to find the best way to frame the play and the best way to tell the story. And things like the doubling came up because if you read the play, there's meant to be about 15 characters in the play, but they're all these little sort of snapshots of people and they, and they kind of drop in and out of scenes and you maybe meet them once and never again. And, and I realized that they all sort of fell into archetypes. So you have the archetypal patriarchal characters, the matriarchal characters, the love interests, the neighbors, and actually it it worked really well to to have an actor sort of represent all those archetypes that drop in and out of Alma and John's journey. So it sort of, it came from a storytelling world. Um, and luckily it sort of, it works. And I think it, it also tied into this idea, Patsy was talking about, about the doppelganger and the idea of having two different selves and who are we, you know, with two different sides of different characters. And I think that's always a joy to play with and a joy for an actor. It's, it's, it's a really theatrical production you know it's, yeah, it's, not, inherently... it's not pretending to be naturalistic yeah. so I think that's always quite I used to love that when I was a child <laughs> like the proper theatre magic and so that's partly what I love about going to the theatre. Uh, Patsy when I saw you in this production I paid you the greatest compliment in my head that I pay any actor which is this which is I thought I would love to see her play Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice that's my <laughs> what? thank you which is like the I mean yeah forget the Oscars that for me is that's the one but you said earlier about you know being um in a previous interview about you know, being an actress you might not be used to having the loudest voice in the room that yeah. you know, are you still getting a lot of auditions to be the girlfriend of the hero or you know the kind of quirky best friend or is that has that changed noticeably in the last couple of years um I suppose in theatre I've not I've not found myself uh to be in a sort of pigeonholed if you will um uh, maybe more in tv and film it to be honest i've been quite lucky i've n- i've never found myself fully frustrated in the types of roles i've been given i don't mind being the quirky psychic because uh, it's a safe space for me i'm not driving the story i'm i'm uh i don't have the responsibility of of carrying a story or taking up too much room so when Alma comes along and she essentially doesn't stop talking for like two and a half hours, um, that was a bit of a challenge because I have to get out of the mind space of, of apologising for taking up room, which I do quite a lot. Um, so it's been a learning curve and I think I'm getting better at, uh, and you got so good about the fact because you guys are reuniting, aren't you, to do three sisters at yeah. the Almeida next year? Are you going to play all three sisters? <laughs> yeah. Is that you now drunk with power? <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, oddly, I'm really looking forward to sh- sharing a story a bit more. Actually, um, as much as I've loved doing the show, and I've we've still got eight more weeks of of doing it, and I'm going to enjoy and cherish every single moment. I I'm looking forward to uh sharing a story next time and um sort of half relaxing in a way because <laughs> <laughs> you don't not allowed to say in front of your director yeah. Rebecca, finally um so for anybody who's still wavering about whether or not they want to see it give us the hardest sales pitch that you can for why this show matters now why you should come and see it um i think there's three main things one is i think you want to get in and be one of the people that saw patsy before she was <laughs> a super, an international superstar <laughs> Because how exciting would that be if you got to sort of see her before she won her Olivier's? It gets very grand. <laughs> I know, before she gets really big-headed. Um, <laughs> another is, I, I I think personally, and I know it's my show, but I do think it has some proper, proper moments of theatre magic and some images that, that the company create that you will remember for the rest of your life. And lastly, 
it's a there's a real good chance this play will never ever be done again it's not done lots you know and it's this production for some reason has managed to capture people's hearts and it you know there might not be a next time so come and see it when it's on now that sounds insanely apocalyptic oh, I know I but I think it's, I think it's I true it. I think it's true <laughs> Well, Rebecca Frecknell, Patsy Farron, thank you very much. The show is Summer and Smoke at the Duke of York's Theatre until 19th of January. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Thank you. The You Ask Us comes from, doesn't actually come from one of our listeners, it comes from Robert of wherever Robert Peston lives. Um, uh, Crouch End, I sometimes see him at Finji Park too. All oh, right, comes from uh, from Robert of Crouch End. Is Jeremy Corbyn going to support a people's vote after the Commons defeat? Well, if you listen to John McDonnell, uh, who did an interview with Laura Coonsbay this afternoon, in which he said, you know, uh, the other option on the table, not all the options on the table. He said, you know, if we don't get our general election, which, you know, he gave voice to logic that has been obvious forever, which is we're probably not going to, then the other option on the table is a uh, is a all singing, all dancing, super soar away people's vote. Lotto's sort of rhetoric on this in, in the aftermath was a little bit frostier. They said, you know, a people's vote is one of, one of the options on the table. Uh, but it seems Labour raw moving closer to it and if you speak to people in Cormac's office they say well you know there's something it seems like the water has changed it seems like we probably will end up there but suppose to answer Peston's question he said you know Corbyn is close to agreeing I'm not sure Corbyn will you'll know more about this maybe step up and say brilliant let's have one I think it'll be more a case of well I suppose we have to I think Labour will be dragged there rather than skipping there arm in arm yeah, I, I think essentially there are kind of two important undercurrents here. One, exactly as you say, I think the the, the character, right? Yeah, you know, Corbyn is never going to expend political capital on uh, calling for a, a, a vote. In many ways, the useful analogy for him here is David Cameron. Is David Cameron a pro-European? Yes. I mean, was that particularly useful to pro-Europeans uh, come the crunch? Not really. Similarly, is Jeremy Corbyn a Eurosceptic? Yes. If I were a Eurosceptic, would I be drawing much comfort from that? No, because just as you know, David Cameron expended no political capital uh, calling for a referendum, he resisted it up until the point that it became difficult to do so and the, pol- the political landscape had shifted to a point where he felt there was an advantage to be gained and there was a very brief advantage to be gained by going, yeah, we'll have this vote. And at some point, Labour is going to have this problem where they are not going to trigger another election uh, unless the withdrawal agreement passes. Well, what is left? The answer then, I think, does have to be it is you then have to follow their, the logic of their conference policy through to its conclusion, which is to uh, move to a, a second vote position. Um, the thing that McDonald uh, is doing, then he, yeah, and the important thing always to understand with McDonald's media appearances is the thing that Corbyn cannot do is the kind of I'm going to go on air, say something I don't really believe, and we're never actually going to do in order to finesse. Because basically, right, there, there is almost certainly, unless there are many more conservative rebels for a people's vote than have declared for a people's vote uh, than they have ever been on the pro-European side of the party, there is not, uh, there are not the numbers for a people's yeah. vote. So uh, McDonnell is like, you know, Corbyn's navvy. Yeah. You know, he breaks the ground and then Corbyn can sail through pain, th- pain free because the party has arrived at the position he yeah. was never going to yeah, you know, and affect a, himself. And essentially at some point, 
Corbyn is going to have to sail through. Oh, we've called for a people's vote. Oh, it hasn't passed. Oh, I guess we're just going to have to abstain or something on the mm-hmm. withdrawal agreement. Oh, well, um, because, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, one should never, ever, ever bet against, uh, you know, people doing things that are self-defeating. However, one also shouldn't bet for people doing something really risky and self-defeating. And unless unless a bunch of Conservative MPs do something risky and self-defeating, it is very difficult to see how a second election or a second referendum uh, will happen. So they are going to have to, uh, at that point, go, well, look, we've tried everything. Uh, guess we had no choice. But, well, I, I, realize, I keep saying guess we had no choice in a, in a sarcastic tone of voice, as if at that point that won't be true. Um, but they are going to have to have demonstrated that they have worked to get to avoid that 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 position if that is where they end up having to be and that's really i think the most important thing that's going on yeah i thought well you know as mcdonald said last night you know he said explicitly what has been the subtext of the sick tests and the uh, and the sequencing of the composite motion they agreed at conference which is we have to be seen to work through all of these and then there'll be a second referendum and the most striking thing that he said at his event with the guardian last night was i'd vote remain and the question I ask is, well, if you're going to vote Remain, and the most like, if it's May's deal versus Remain or whatever, let's assume for a second, no deal won't be on the ballot paper. How does Labour finesse its transition from now? I'm telling you, like the DUP and ERG outflanking May to the right to, yeah, uh, but vote Remain. And then actually, I think the Eurosceptics give them Tory Eurosceptics give them air cover, like Dom Rob uh, and others who are saying, well, this deal is so bad. Quite cleverly, they thought we might as well might as well stay in the EU. Well, actually, that gives Corbyn McDonald ideal cover. They say this deal is rubbish. We tried our best to engineer a situation where we get to negotiate. We can't. Let's call the whole thing off. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Helen Lewis, to our political correspondent Patrick Maguire. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.